Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, five wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, and Susan's latest book, Down There, Sexual and Reproductive Health, The Wise Woman Way. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at the Wise Woman University. But you can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine. And even though you're right down the road, I miss you because I'm here with the green goddesses. The green goddesses are going to say hello to everybody. Hello. Oh, my gosh. Hello, green like... goddess. <laughs> Rebecca can awesome. imagine so easily what it looks like here because she has been here. And did you? do I recall correctly that you were the one who watered the plants when you were here? I did do some watering. Yes, I remember watering plants. I did a lot of planting of some of stuff too, and yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we had a for and those a lot of you who haven't been here. We have a deck, <clears throat> and the deck <laughs> right behind the house 
is a huge quarry pond, and it slants off really steeply. And so we have mm-hmm. a, a deck cantilevered out over it and over the pond. And then we ha- I have over 100 potted plants grouped around us. Mm-hmm. So we really feel, you know, all the lushness and the color and the delight of all of the plants. And thank you for the care that you gave the plants when you were here. It takes a lot. Yeah, yeah. It takes a lot to care for the, the plants, but it's it's a lifelong uh, thing that I've I've taken, I've embraced, <laughs> I've, I've kept it going in my own life, and it seems every year I just add to, to add to the the care, you know. Yeah, it's like every for. year nature reveals to us a, another way or a deeper way or a more expansive way to care. Mhm. Yeah, I just feel like there's like a such a great exchange though because like as much as the plants have helped me, it's like I could barely ever, you know, give back what <laughs> what they've done for me. So I just feel like I'm like they're like a servant to them now or something, you know. <laughs> it's like the, the more that they I'm like, okay, now I'm just totally dedicated to this path, you know. So it's good. It, it really is a giveaway dance between us and the plants. It really is. It really, really is. And there's such a joy when we find how much appreciation there is when we give away that way. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know it was a big moment for me because, you know, I was interested in gardening. I had that, you know, back to the land, 70s thing, going to go out to the land, make a garden, da-da-da. So I'm reading all the books on gardening, organic gardening, and, you know, all this stuff. And, and basically what they trained me to do was to make war on my garden. And it took me a long time to realize that's what I was doing. The first thing that I'm instructed to do is go out there and turn the soil. Mm-hmm. Nature never does that. Well, not never. Nature, as a rule, does not turn the soil. She adds and build soil from the top, and the soil microorganisms are most active in the top half to one inch of the soil. So when you actually turn the soil, you you bury the microorganisms. Yeah. Yeah, and I I add... I'd have like I just have a totally different way of gardening than most people because I you know like I'll add like manure and you know like I went to the coast last week and I add I brought I was like so happy on the way there going because um, I was like oh yeah I don't have anybody to carry up the trail this time you know because I have had a toddler and a small child with me almost every time and I'm it's such like a long haul but then. When I was there, there was so much seaweed on the beach. I ended up carrying like probably like sixty or seventy pounds of seaweed back up the trail. But you know, I brought that home for my garden, and it's just like always adding like these different elements to the the garden. So, did you sheet compost the seaweed? Did you just lay it on the ground? Do you have a trench that you put it in? Did you add it to your compost pile? So what I did is I just. Um, it was, you know, like a bunch of sea palm fronds and then like a bunch of uh, bullwhip seaweed kelp. And I just, I just dig it. I just uh, put like a little trench in and then like put like the whole strands of seaweed in, um, in different parts of the garden, just like all around. And so, you know, like as it gets watered and throughout like the, the winter, it'll break down in there. 
And I do that with, like, a lot of, like, whole kind of, like, plant stuff. Like, I'll put it in my garden and just, like, let it just break down naturally and let the worms and stuff just, like, eat it and and do its thing. Yes, that trench composting works out really well if you plant, like, two tight rows of something. Like, instead of having a row and a walkway and a row and a walkway, you have a walkway and a row and a compost trench and a row and a walkway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't have, like, any, like, kind of formal way of doing it. I just kind of, like, you know, just, like, add it here and there and, um, yeah. (laughs) Dig up little spots around them. they need it. Yeah, yeah. What a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, I love my garden. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we've been noticing in our wild salads that – it's more difficult to find flowers now. Mm. You know, I I talk all the time about how people misinterpret summer solstice as the beginning of summer. But if you're alert to it, and here we're a full, you know, moon after summer solstice, you can see it's already waning. Yeah, you can you can feel the the releasing the pulling in that mm-hmm. is already happening from that brilliant point of the solstice. You know, and we were talking about leading up to that, how the leaves were going, yes, more, more, ah, 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 you know. And now, like today, it was really, really sunny, but like I know we felt, and it looked to me like the leaves felt like, ah, too much. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, a little too much. Today. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, like, pretty much dark at, like, 9 o'clock last night, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's really starting to feel like fall's coming. It's, like, here. But Mm -hmm. it's great weather for the mints, for the mint family. Oh, yeah, my Tulsi is going crazy, and so is the shisho, and, yeah, uh, skullcap and all of it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I thought maybe I should make Shiso the plant of the week for our Green Goddess Week because I'm feeding them Shiso in every possible form. They're having it in their salads. They're having Shiso vinegar. They're having Shiso pesto. We're talking about Shiso. I love Shiso. What can I say? Mm-hmm. I need to start using mine a little bit more, but I'm wanting it to really set seed this year because there are new plants in the garden, so... Um, I'm reluctant to use like a whole lot of it. I want to spread the seed a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's all volunteer out in the deck, and I would say that I'm probably looking at 100 chiso plants, 150 wow. chiso plants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really, every place that I have not purposely put a plant is filled with chiso. Let's put it that way. <laughs> in every pot and bed on the deck. And I don't know, were you here awesome. the year where we had a sheet of forest between the deck and the barn? No, I was not. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was so wonderful. I, I'm always hoping for it to come back again. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there was something special in the soil that year, but there were, there was about a thousand shiso plants there, and they were like up to my shoulders. Wow. Yeah, it was really wow. she so yeah, yeah. The the stalks were like as thick as chopsticks. Oh wow. 
That's so cool. Smells yeah. so good. <laughs> <laughs> Perilla Frutasins. I call it American Tulsi. And like Tulsi, as far as I'm concerned, it's an adaptogen. The seeds are really delicious. The seeds of all mints can be eaten. Every mint is edible, and every part of it is edible. But um, she says seeds have actually been used as a foodstuff in Japan. Hmm. Yeah, they're not How do they prepare it? Yeah, they're just, you know, they use like a, another seed, right? Somehow it's get like it free of the chaff or any other plant material. And then usually, you know, before you use it, lightly toast it in some way to help, you know, break open the seed coat. And then, Mm. or soak it, right? And then boil it up. Yeah, I I found it far more doable than trying to collect shepherd's purse seeds, which apparently was used as a flower extender, especially in Russia. Yeah, they must have fields of it, though, so... (laughs) Because, yeah, it's hard to imagine getting enough from what I have growing well, around. I didn't know. I found a really huge patch by a barn one year, and I said, okay, I'm going to do, you know, shepherd's purse seed. And it was a real, real trial to get the seed out of that the shepherd's purse. Not that it was hard to get the mm-hmm. seed out, but there was just so much other plant matter in with it. It was hard to separate the seeds. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I really like about the lamb's quarter seeds is you just eat the whole thing. Right. You can eat the sepals, you can eat the flower, you can eat the seed. It's all good. Mm-hmm. So it's so easy to harvest. Of course, one of the main differences between wild seeds and cultivated seeds is the first thing that we ask cultivated plants to do is, would you please ripen all of your seeds at once for us? It makes it ever so much easier for us when we harvest. No wild plant in its right mind would harvest all its seeds at once. Mm-hmm. So to harvest wild, like if you're going to harvest wild amaranth seed, you have to keep going back every two or three days as the seeds ripen, right? Right, yeah. Right, whereas I'm saying with the lamb's quarter, once the seed is ripened, you, that's fine. You know, if there's flowers, it's fine. It's, you can eat all of it. So it just makes it so much. To me, it's one of the most convenient seeds. Plantain, too. Hmm. We eat the of the plantain along with the seed. Yeah, and it produces so much, the plantain. <laughs> the broadleaf plantain with its big, spiky spike, a pretty little purple flowers followed by those seeds. Hmm. And James Duke reminds us that all wild seeds are fabulous resources for omega-3 fatty acids. Mm-hmm. I'm going to harvest more seeds this year as they're coming yeah. on now. Yeah, there's... <laughs> This named Anne. Gosh, she was here a long time ago, maybe 27, 28 years ago. She was really into seeds, and she really, really encouraged my interest in seeds and really got them into my diet in a consistent way. Thanks, Anne. Hmm. Um, I do want to mention I uh, messaged with Sean last week, and I wanted to just tell everybody the time of his show is uh, this Thursday on August 2nd, and it is it starts at 7.30 Eastern time, so it's at the same time as this show is, and you are welcome to call in with your questions. And you just use the same number as you would call in uh, for this show. And at 9 o'clock tonight, Mirabai Star is going to be with us. She writes creative nonfiction. 
and contemporary translations of sacred literature. Her latest book, Wild Mercy, is subtitled Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women. She'll be with us at 9 o'clock, so come back or stick with us till then, Mirabai Star. Sounds good. Um, we have quite a few people on the line. If you have a question for Susan, make sure to press 1 to ask your question. And are you ready for the first caller, Susan? I am. Okay, here we go. Uh, the first caller is coming from a private number. Hello, Susan. Hi. Susan, hi. I'm going to just talk to you quickly because I spoke to you last week. I, I called, first of all, to thank you. Well, actually, I wanted to thank you and also to apologize because I was being irritating last week. I, I'm the girl with the, with, I want to say, with the shrinking teratomas. Um, I was very PSTD, if I can use that phrase, after being in the emergency room, and I might have been annoying to you, but I just wanted to report back to you a couple of things. The mo after I hung up with you, instead of I wanted to listen to the rest of the show, I raced to the health food store, and I got my castor oil and my chickweed and my triple goddess and my skull cap in case I'm in pain. And I, I can't even describe to you, but I know I don't have to because I know you know this. Something just radically shifted for me, and I know that you were, you were, you were being, you know, yourself and a little fierce with me, and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate it, and I wanted to give you deep bows, and I also wanted to say that I'm noticing, and I'm doing my meditations, the river's running through it, and they're shrinking. I, I was able to attend a yoga retreat. I, I didn't push myself, but I'm defecating and urinating almost pain-free, so I know something is going on, and I just just thank you so very much, and I'm sorry if I was annoying in any way. It's okay. We all know that other human beings are annoying. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, the joke about the person who was rumored to be enlightened, and somebody sought him out and said, I hear you're enlightened, and the enlightened being said, I was till you showed up. <laughs> Well, again, I was asking stupid questions. I was just really dazed. So I, I thank you so much. I needed, however you said it to me, I just, it woke me up. So deep bows to you, and thank you so very, very much. Thank you, too. Green blessings. Green blessings to you. The next caller is coming from the 904 area code. Hello, Susan. This is Shannon. Hi, Shannon. Hi, I called last week. I was the one from Hawaii and got staph infection, double dose of antibiotics and breathing problems, brain fog, crocodile doctors. I told you a little bit of my story, but I got cut off at the end. Um, do you remember? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Well. Um, I just wanted to recap um, on my brain MRI. So I finally get a brain MRI, and this is what it says. It says moderate to severe lobulated inflammatory mucosal thickening of the left maxillary paranasal sinus without air fluid level, and the remaining sinuses are clear. So it's on my left sinus, 
And I was like, hmm, that's weird because I had a tooth extracted about two years ago and my dentist had left the root tip up in my sinus and it was fine for an entire year. It, I didn't flare up or anything. And like, as soon as I got staph infection and took the antibiotics and the breathing problems and all that started, then the brain fog, I think, is definitely related to the sinus infection that is not going away. Um, so now I'm about to have oral surgery to remove that root tip up in my sinus. Um, so he's going to cut open my sinus, take out the root tip, and he's going to inject me with anesthesia, which I'm terrified about. And I'm also terrified about antibiotics that are mandatory after the surgery. And I just wanted to ask you, is this surgery even necessary being that like it didn't flare up for a year, but now all of a sudden like it's flaring up and also are antibiotics necessary after surgery? And if so, what are, what are your recommendations on antibiotics? And I have a fear of antibiotics because I think they have been the culprit of all of my health issues. Hmm. Truthfully, we could say that surgery is only necessary if the surgery saves the person's life. Uh, yeah. Every other surgery is elective, yes? Yeah. This is an elective surgery? Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm you're choosing like to have it. It will, it will definitely help. The elective think, surgery is not, not necessary. By definition, yeah. elective surgery is not necessary. So the answer to your first question, is it necessary, is by definition, it is not necessary. Mm -hmm. Are antibiotics necessary if you elect to have the surgery? More than half of the people who die after non-cardiac surgery die as a result of infection. Yeah. And that infection usually gets started during the surgery, but is usually symptom-free for five to seven days, at which point it's extremely difficult to counter. And this is why antibiotics are said to be necessary after surgery, because they are seen as life-saving. Okay. Do you agree with that? Like, is that true? Like, well, if what half of the people who die after surgery are dying of is infection, then it's certainly true for them, isn't it? Yeah. Perhaps, however, you're, you're asking me what's true for you, but I can't tell you what's true for you. You have to decide what's true for you. Yeah, have certainly, I mean, being... there have certainly been times um, when I have had oral surgery when I did refuse the antibiotics and I used echinacea. And I used echinacea because I am willing to use really large amounts of echinacea, three to four dropperfuls every hour. Yeah. I was willing 
to use that genesia because I believe and evidence supports my belief that I'm in touch with my body and that I've specifically mm-hmm. asked my guardians to alert me to any infection. And um, because I have a really severe and serious talk about any kind of anesthesia that's going to be used. Yeah, I'm scared about that, too. Um, well, many times I simply refuse it. I know. I tried to refuse it. But this sounds, be- sounds pretty deep and intense. Yep. Yeah. They don't want you moving. Yeah. So I can't answer for you as to whether or not this is the best choice for you, but your body can tell you. And one way to let your body tell you is to live as though it were. So take a significant period of time, like an entire day, And live as though you have had the surgery and taken the antibiotic. And see what that feels like. It feels terrible. (laughs) Because if you choose to do that, then you are going to be living that day many, many days like that. And then take a day to live having refused the surgery. Or put it off. Or whatever it would be if you don't have that surgery. And see what that feels like. Yeah, I've been living it, and I've been feeling this brain fog, disorientation, blurry vision for a long period of time now, and I just, like, really want to get better. And I've been doing, like, your nourishing herbal infusions, and it's really helping me with my breathing. But, like, the brain fog thing, I think, is definitely related to, like, my sinus that's very inflamed. So I'm thinking that... I know it's going to suck, but I think that, I mean, I I don't know what else to do at this point. Like, I really just want to get back to my normal way of living. Like, it's hard to even drive sometimes because I feel so disoriented. And the doctors are guaranteeing that after the surgery, all of these symptoms will go away? No, they're not guaranteeing anything. They... Yeah, they told me that. Well, let's then admit that this is a dream of yours and it is not necessarily supported by reality. Um, yeah. So So let's let's um, see if we can in any way piece together what the reality would be. You believe that your brain fog is related to inflammation in your sinuses. After the surgery, will there be more or less inflammation? Less inflammation. Because the surgery will not inflame those tissues. The surgery will remove that dead root up in my sinus. That's and causing. Then, and and what then, about the surgery itself? What I'm saying is surgery causes inflammation. I know. Um, so it's like cancels each other out kind of. Um, That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. There's yeah. going to be an intense increase in inflammation in that area, which may never go away. Ask the surgeon if you don't believe that. Yeah, he said that it's going to regenerate itself, my sinus, that he's going to tear open. But, yeah, I believe you for sure. 
I am not saying your sinus won't regenerate. I'm saying that the surgery itself causes inflammation. I know, yeah. So it's a very difficult decision because there's this thing being held out that we want to believe. And um, I think it was Helena Rubinstein. I may be misquoting but Somebody said to Helena Rubinstein, who, of course, made a fortune in cosmetics, what is it that you sell? And she says, I sell hope. Yeah. So how much hope are you buying? And could you transfer that hope to something else? I don't know, but it's a question. Could you hope mm-hmm. instead visualization could cause that root to dislodge itself and work its way out of your body? What, could it, There's I no reason why it couldn't. What could? What could? Your body can eject that piece of tooth fragment if that's what you want it to do. Really? Of course. Or your body can just wall up around it again as it did before. It's a vulnerable spot, and it will be vulnerable anytime something really severe happens to you. But it will always be a vulnerable spot, and surgery will make it more vulnerable, not less. Yeah, you're right. Um, so my question, next question is, like, is there any herbs that, or anything that could help my body eject root of sinus that is dead and in my brain? Comfrey. Comfrey, yeah, I've been drinking it. Mm-hmm. Have you been poulticing it over the sinus area? No. That would be something worthwhile doing. And while you're poulticing it, you are envisioning this little bit of your tooth being removed from your body, yes? Yeah. How is it going to be removed? I remember Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talking about a, a, she had really gotten into visualization, the visualization of like, you know, sitting in the army and attacking the cancer and killing the cancer. And then she was working with this Quaker man. He said, I'm sorry, Elizabeth, we just don't do that. We don't attack and kill. And Elizabeth looked at him and she said, well, figure something out. And so the next time that we saw him, he said, I have little helpers who are coming and carrying this cancer away cell by cell. Well, I'll definitely try that. Mm-hmm. Or any other visualization. Hello? Or, are you still there? Hello? Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, okay. I think you got cut off for a second, but I'm in okay. service zone. But I missed your story, but I'll listen to it again when I replay this. Um, okay. But, um, Okay. Well, thank you. I have another question, if it's not too long. Um, The question, if it's going to take a long time to answer, I'll just say next week. How about that? Okay. All right. Great. Thank you for your insights. Good night. Green blessings. All right. Green blessings. 
The next caller is coming from the 718 area code. Hi, Susan. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I know that you usually, um, I don't always have the words to describe what my question is, but I'll try and then um, maybe you'll guide me along. So I've had on and off, like in the past, vertigo, and I'm not always sure what it, it gets triggered by, but I two weeks ago, I went on a three-hour plane ride, and I got, like, that sensation by takeoff and landing, and then, which was difficult, and then it sorted out. Um, last week, it kind of started again. I'm thinking the only thing that, like, I did different was, like, being exposed, you know, in the hot weather outside, and I am sensitive to heat. I'm also feeling a little bit congested, and I'm suspecting maybe like a little bit the the fluid in the ear is maybe not draining well because when I lay down like at night everything just spins and it it makes me like nauseous and if I turn to the side or bend forward so I'm kind of like sleeping with a bunch of pillows propped up and um, trying to wait for this to resolve but hasn't resolved yet and I was hoping um, you can you know kind of let me know, like, if there's any uh, herbs that can help, you know, for congestion or, you know, drainage or if there's something, you know, other that, you know, going in that direction. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure 100% what the vertigo is coming from. So I, I just hope that I can um, ask you if you can. I remember very vividly one afternoon quite a while ago. And my cat was sleeping and awoke and stretched and fell off where she, where she was onto the floor. And I'm like looking at the cat, and she's like kind of, you know, I'm thinking, is she had a seizure? What's going on? And I set her up, mm-hmm. and she's just like wobbling around. And I took her to the vet, and the vet said, oh, she has vertigo from an inner ear infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do know that vertigo usually arises from a disturbance in the inner ear. Okay. And then often it is an infection. You said you f- it feels to you like the fluids aren't moving well. And, of course, mm-hmm. infection is inflammation. Okay. One way that healers throughout time have come to a diagnosis is the way we're doing this and then saying so try something that would get rid of infection and if that doesn't work after 10 days then that isn't what's causing the vertigo okay and then you can go on to the next thing that might cause vertigo this is certainly the most likely Right. So it's a really good place to start. And if you take, you know, echinacea, for instance, for seven to ten days, you certainly are not bringing any harm to yourself. Right. And like, how um, how much do I do I take? Like a dropper full three times a day, or as a dropper full, which is twenty five drops, is the correct dose for a person who weighs fifty pounds. 
If you weigh more than that, you would need to take more. Okay, got that. And do you have echinacea on hand? Um, I I will check. I'm not 100% sure. I know I have, like, Rebecca's, um, I got her uh, travel, you know, package, so I'm going to check if it has it. Wonderful. Great. Okay. Then that will be made with echinacea augustifolia, which is my preferred echinacea. Mm-hmm. Many other commercial products are made with purpurea, which I don't personally find to be as ineffective and worse Yet, many of the commercial products contain other herbs, including golden seal, which I don't like to use at all. Okay. And um, oh, it, so you can, you know, if you weigh a hundred pounds, take two dropperfuls. If you weigh a hundred and fifty, mm-hmm. take three dropperfuls. You weigh a hundred and twenty-five, take two and a half dropperfuls. Okay. And I would start off by taking a dose every four hours. And so that means if you can, wake up once during the night to take a dose. If you miss a dose in the middle of the night, it's not the end of the world. It's not a big deal. Okay. And if you get good results, then you could stick with that or take it more frequently. And once the results are good enough that you feel like you don't need to take it, then back off. So instead of taking it every four hours, take it every six hours, then every eight hours. Still take the same dose, but lengthen the time between doses. And um, would this also help with, like, flying back home? Like on the, I don't know, I guess I could take small um, amounts on the plane. I'm not sure. When are you flying again? Um, This coming Sunday. So you have almost a week yeah. to, use, to use the echinacea? Yes. Okay. okay. It's going to be effective. It could be effective. And, yes, you can take tinctures on planes, either in your carry-on luggage or in your checked luggage. I prefer to carry, carry them on because right. that way I can protect them and take care of them. There's only been one mm-hmm. airport that's ever challenged my right to carry tinctures, and this was at the world's tiniest airport. And they were really just trying to throw their weight around. And they took out, I have, you know, a zipper bag with my tinctures, and they took this out of my carry-on bag as though, aha, we have found, you know, the contraband. Look at all these things. These must be in a Ziploc bag. And I looked at her and I said, those are my medicines. And they immediately put them back in the bag, apologized profusely, and sent me on my way. Mm-hmm. Well. Okay, so I don't have to worry about that. That's good. You do not have to worry uh, about that at all. Okay, good. And okay. then if for whatever yeah, if for whatever reason this doesn't work, what would be another like then second? then you can, uh, hopefully by then you will have looked up possible reasons for vertigo. Okay. Got it. And go on to the next one. And if you need help with the second reason and what to do about that, give me a call. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Susan. You're always there for me. Thank you. Green glass eggs. Good night. Okay. Good night. The next caller is coming from the 907 area code. Hello, Susan. Hi. Hi. How are you? You're, um, it's really good listening to your show again. <laughs> um, Thanks. Be <I'm>, here. 
Yeah, so I was calling because I have this um, lightheadedness, like in the in the back of my head, and it feels it just feels like sick. That's what it. That's the best way that I've found to describe it. And um, when I was nursing, like about three years ago, it would seem to get worse when I was nursing. Like it felt like. Um, my the back of my head was just being drained out but I have been drinking the nourishing herbal infusions and um so I don't know uh what it is and I'm just looking for and those are really the only symptoms that I can use to describe it is that it just it's a lightheaded sick feeling in the back of my head do you live in an area where there are any cranial sacral therapists um, no, and that would be too expensive for me to do right now. Uh, there aren't any, I live in a um, small area, mm-hmm. so there aren't any that I'm aware of in in the small city I live in. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seeded uh, a dream? Have I ever um, what? Seeded a dream? Seeded a dream. In other words, what you can do before you go to sleep tonight is say, I am in need of some cranial. And if there is anyone available to offer me some cranial sacral therapy tonight while I am asleep, I would appreciate that and be very thankful. Okay. Okay. All right, I will try that then. There may be a charge. Okay. The charge might be that you might be asked to help someone else. Okay. Yeah, I I do give it Reiki, and that does help, and then usually I'll just fall asleep afterwards. Um. I guess that is another symptom is that my head gets really heavy, not as heavy as it did a few years ago, but um, all like all I want to do even in the middle of the day is like just lay back on my pillow, and that provides a lot of relief. So a lot of times after I give my head Reiki, I will fall asleep or kind of enter into a little like dreamlike state for a little bit and feel rejuvenated, but it's very short term, so... I just was looking for other ideas it, of what... going on for how long? Several years, about mm-hmm. at least three years. During that time, have you had any... Sorry, you, you cut off. Have I had any... Sense of what it might be connected to? Um... I haven't. Um, I remember it used to get so heavy. I I cut my hair actually partly because I'm not sure if it was just my, my head make, like just weighing everything down. I thought when I was breastfeeding maybe I had to do um, with something with minerals because it felt like my I was just being drained like it was being drained of something. And okay, um, just Justine is sending us a message. And Justine is reminding us that when she was, she became severely depleted in vitamin B12. Okay. 
and that vitamin B12 depletion can cause uh, the kinds of sensations that you're describing, um, all the way out to, especially in elders, mimicking a dementia. But your head, definitely your head heavy and feeling drained. That was one of her primary symptoms. So she, she said she just so drained. Mm-hmm. So yes. that's, that's yeah. a possibility. You can go get a blood test to see what your vitamin B12 is, or you can just go to a store and buy a supplement if you'd rather. Okay. I didn't know that a B12 vitamin supplement would work. But, um. If it is something that is um, absorbed by your mucous membrane, in other words, a, a or if something you swallow, it will not be absorbed. Okay. Did you, you said a spray would work? I mean, there have to be vitamin B12 supplements, otherwise every vegan in the world would be dead. <laughs> right, because yeah. vitamin B12 is a critical nutrient. Get it only from animal products. There's no B12 in the plant world. Okay. Apparently and, and you. There's some algae or seaweed that has some vitamin B12 in it, but study after study has found it unusable by the human body. And so there are are B12 supplements. What Justine did was she got shots. Hmm. Because she tried tried the various supplements, and they had a little effect, but not what she was really looking for. And since she had gotten... You know, an actual test at the doctor's, she was able to go back to the doctor's and say, I need vitamin B12 shots and get them. Hmm. Okay. But you said a spray would work too? Is that what you you said? Sprays do work. They're yeah. fairly expensive, but they do work. Okay. Um, and pills would work, just maybe not, not be as effective? Pills do not work. Do not work. Okay. The vitamin B12 in the pill is deactivated by the acid in your stomach. Okay. All right. Good to know. Yeah, I'll try that um, because I've been kind of worried <laughs> because it's just been going on for so many years. I, I don't know. I just, I the just fact that it's been going soul. on for years makes me very not worried. Okay. Because if it was lethal, you'd be dead. True. Okay. Well, so we're dealing with chronic problems, so we don't have to wor- much to worry about. Mm-hmm. Except okay. that we don't want it to keep on going on. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much for your input, and I will definitely try the vitamin B12. All right, then. Green blessings. Green blessings. Bye-bye. 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 The next caller is coming from the 973 area code. Hi, Susan. Hi, Rebecca. Happy almost Lamas. And I'm not calling with a question as much as um, really giving thanks that you have mentioned on your blog talk radio about Yarrow almost every week when someone calls in. And I wanted to just share my experience of using Yarrow 
Um, in case there's any other listeners who are parents out there that, uh, so years ago when you started talking about yarrow as mouthwash and toothbrush and as a repellent for insects, I started tincturing some, I started growing some and tincturing it with a hundred proof vodka. And this summer it's been so, so abundant in my garden and I really was able to use it as self-protection. One of my three children recently got diagnosed with mono and in taking care of him, I was able to really use that yarrow tincture um, as a hand sanitizer for myself and I was able to use it as part of, um, use the tincture just even as part of a sponge bath. and. It was such a different way of having a relationship with Yarrow for a different level of self-protection. And had it not been for the weekly reminder of Yarrow that I started hearing years ago, I don't know if I would have come to this plant um, so easily. And so I just wanted to thank you for teaching us about the simpler method. One plant at a time can be such a guardian in our role caregiving. Thank you so much for calling in and sharing that star story. It makes my heart go pitter-patter, pitter-patter. Green blessings. Green blessings. Excellent. The next caller is coming from the 831 area code. Hello, Lady Susan. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. So my question is um, about blisters. Um, I've been using a shovel a lot, and I'm wondering what I could apply topically. I'm drinking my infusions, Comfrey and others. So you have an unbroken blister? Yes. Excellent. Keep it unbroken as much as you can. Do you have any comfrey ointment or plantain ointment? Um, I have neither, though I have um, dry comfrey and fresh plantain, though I do have a neighbor who I was thinking about calling who has um, comfrey oil that she made. Nice. It, the oiliness of the oil or the ointment seems to be important, and a Band-Aid saturated in the oil or ointment put on the blister they put over it, usually the will deflate within 24 hours, sometimes faster. Wonderful. 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 Thank you. Yes, I've already put on some CBD oil that I, that I had. Um, yes, and I also was going to ask you about um, elderberry. I've been finding them, and I made a tincture of some that I let dry for three or four days because I was unsure if there might be compounds in there that um, I wouldn't want. Um, and then I was going to ask if you would use the fresh berries and the fresh berries told me, just go ahead and include me in, in the rest of your tincture. Um, I'm not exactly sure I'm following your thinking. You dried the elderberries in order to concentrate the compounds you don't want? Ha, <sighs> ah, good point. Okay. Yes. Um, so I had two batches. The first batch I let um, shrivel three or four days, 
And I recently Which means got they some. have less water and more of everything else. Right. Right. So fresh berries it is. I use dried elderberries. There's not much difference in berries between the fresh and the dried, except water. Right. I prefer tinctures from fresh things, but I live in an area where the birds are very greedy for the elderberries. <laughs> and it's a rare year that I even get so much as a single elderberry, so I buy them dried because they're pretty reasonably priced. Mm. And when I make a tincture from a dried berry, like dried elderberry or dried chisandra or dried hawthorn berries, I personally don't like to use that tincture until it's a year old. Oh, wow. If it's something that I need right away, what I'll do is I'll make several jars. So I'll make one that I open up and use within six weeks, the minimum time required, and then another jar or two that can get older and older. And then each time I finish a jar, I make a new one, and that way I always have tincture that's at least a year old. Because my experience is that it's more difficult to get all of the compounds out of the dried plant into the vodka. When we are making tinctures, we're working with a process called osmosis, which means that fluids want to stabilize and be the same on both sides of a permeable membrane. And the cell walls are those permeable membranes. And so if there's a constituent in the elder that isn't in the vodka, it wants to go into the vodka so that it can equalize and be the same on both sides. And the permeable membranes, which are the cell walls, stiffen and get harder and thicker as the plant dries. Mm. So that's why I like to let my tinctures, the same thing with roots, if I make a tincture of dried echinacea root. My land is very rocky, Echinacea, deeper, too deeper root for my land. So I buy dried Echinacea, Augustifolia, and my preference is to stay a year ahead on my Echinacea. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for asking. Green blessings. Green blessings. The next caller is coming from the 413 area code. Hey, hello there, um, Susan. I, I'm calling because, um, first off, my, my daughter um, gifted me your, your book on menopause when I was going through the menopausal years. It was absolutely a lifesaver. I um, in, enjoyed and implemented a lot of your advice. But now I'm facing this thing where um, I had a nodule found on my thyroid, and um, it was suspicious after they did an ultrasound, and it was suspicious after um, they did a fine needle biopsy. And so they wanted to take out my whole thyroid. I had um, one big nodule on the right and two small nodules on the left. Uh, they only biopsied the big one because I yeah, I really couldn't tolerate it much after that. And, and so they stopped, and I figured they could generalize one nodule is probably the other. But now here I am. They took uh, uh, the right side of my, nodule, my thyroid with the large nodule out and 
it was cancerous. It was um, papillary carcinoma follicular variant. And so this was this had just happened, and uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to proceed, but I do know that I want to do anything and everything I can to support what I have left of my thyroid, and I wonder if you have any suggestions um, as to how to proceed with something to just keep my body nourished. Are you currently drinking nourishing herbal infusions? Well, I I, <laughs> I kind of dabble a little bit. I have uh, nettles on one day, and some days I'll, I'll drink a little bit of... Um, uh, I have oat straw and um, um, and when you say you drink a little bit of oat straw, what's a little bit? Oh well, I I would say uh, 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 probably a, a cup um, that I um, brew up, maybe a handful of oat straw in sixteen ounces of water, and uh, I, I will um, let it steep for maybe a half an hour or so, and, and then I'll drink that. Down. The answer to my question is no. You are not drinking any nourishing herbal infusions. Oh no! What am I supposed to be doing? <laughs> I don't know. Probably not on a regular basis. I have oat straw. You are none. Have... Nothing of what you was do, or you are doing is making a nourishing herbal infusion. Okay, so so and you got some you. things right. Boiling water. That's right. Dried herb, that's right. You got those things right. So let's start from the parts that you got right. The first thing you need is a scale. Okay. The second thing you need is a quart canning jar, sometimes called a mason jar. Oh, okay. Okay, we're going to get a scale that has a T-A-R-E tear function. We got our quart canning jar. We're going to put our quart canning jar on the scale. We're going to press on tear, and the yep. scale will turn on because it's going to be an electronic scale, uh, which is what most people buy, and it will zero out. And then you add one ounce of oat straw to that jar. Okay. All right? When it yep. says one ounce, you take the jar off the scale, turn the scale off, put it away, and boil a quart of water and fill the jar right up to the top with that quart of boiling water. If the herb floats to the top, take a wooden spoon and stir it down into the water. Make sure the jar is filled to the top. Put a lid on it and let it sit for a minimum of four hours. Oh, okay. So, yes, I'm doing teas. You're doing infusions. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I do remember that vaguely from the menopause book, yes. So you're not getting the nourishment from the herb by letting it steep for only half an hour. No. The actual nourishing constituents move slowly into solution. Poisonous constituents move more readily into solution. Hmm. So many of the mints contain volatile oils, which are poisons. That's why they have them, right? They're insect repellent. Yeah. The family makes all of these volatile oils to protect themselves. They generally grow in very harsh climates. And those are very easily extracted right into boiling water right away because they're poisons. But the nutritive qualities 
the plant wants to hold on to because it wants the nourishment. And it's not going to give it up readily. I usually let my infusion sit for 8 to 10 hours. Cool. Because I make that's it last good. night and then I strain it in the morning. Yeah, that's just that's just exactly what I was thinking. I, I, I actually have some sitting now that I was going to drink before bed, but I'll I'll drink it in the morning. Wonderful. But and, what, what and, and the, as far as I'm concerned, your your minimum daily requirement of nourishing herbal infusion is a quart. Okay. So you make a, a quart. You make a quart at a time. Okay. And after it's brewed, you strain it mm-hmm. and put the liquid in the refrigerator. You can drink it cold, or you can heat it up and have it hot. The only way I don't like it is lukewarm or room temperature. My sweetheart really likes it much better at room temperature. Yeah, I'm a room temperature person too. Then I then I throw a little bit of honey into it. Is that okay? <laughs> sure, it's totally fine. Put honey in it, whiskey in it, put coffee in it, whatever you want to. Really, sure. it's totally fine. Once you have those nutrients in solution, adding anything else is not going to change them. Mm-hmm. So, but what would you what would you suggest for nourishing and strengthening thyroid, lungs? Because uh, I, my understanding the, of the this seaweed thyroid, called fucus, F-U-C-U-S. F-U-C-U-S. Fucus. It's also called bladder rack. Oh, X with an F. F like um the first three letters of a word that's a bad word, F U C. Okay. Oh, US. it is F. Okay. Okay. Right. Yep. Fook us. Yep. Okay. Oh. Yes. And you might want you said you had the menopause book? Or is that the the previous I, person? There's I, a I long fairly long discussion, three or four pages. In New Menopause Years, The Wise Woman Way on um, things that support the thyroid and things that are hard on the thyroid. One of the strongest things that's difficult on the thyroid is any raw member of the cabbage family. Oh, yes. You know, and I I, I remember reading that, and uh, I, I had this thing where I was doing these kale smoothies for, for about a month and a half and now I'm saying, oh my god, that's why my thyroid's all out of whack because I do the kale smoothies. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that's not the case but... Um, well, it is the case and you know it's the ah, case. <laughs> so I, well, I don't do that anymore. I don't even, I'm afraid to even throw a little kale in my in my raw salad. But, so uh, I, yeah. Been, yeah. Yeah, you know I come from a macrobiotic background and the macrobiotic diet is the only diet that has actually been shown to help people with cancer, and no salad of any kind is allowed. Oh, my. No oh. raw food of any kind is allowed if you have cancer. Susan, my beautiful garden. What am I going to do with all those baby yeah. greens? Cook them. them. Cook them. Uh, we, just, we just had collards for dinner yeah. from the garden. Yeah, I love arugula sautéed. Oh, the collards were so delicious. And I cooked cooked the collards. You want to guess how long I cooked them for? Um, No. How long? 20 minutes. Three hours. Oh, my gosh. Oh, you cooked them down until they were just um, 
Oh, yeah, I've had cabbage done that way, where it's just they're just brown and and um, sweet and yeah, sounds good. Okay, Green Goddesses, were your collards brown and mushy? No. Not brown and mushy. No. <laughs> Delicious. Yum. So good. <laughs> <laughs> They're laughing because I tell them that people always say, oh, if you cook something that long, it'll be mushy. <laughs> this is always the response, and it's simply not true. So they're, they're – Now, I wouldn't cook cabbage for three hours, but collards is pretty tough. It really needs the whole, whole three hours to oh get my. itself in a respectable state to be put on the dinner table. I better retire. I haven't got, to, I haven't got the time to feed myself anymore now all of a sudden. Three hours, man. Well, I'm not standing next to the pot stirring it for three hours. <laughs> I put it up to cook and I check in on it every like 45 minutes or so. Okay. And I don't have my notes in my collars and my kale for swimming lessons either. In other words, I do not fill a pot with water and drop my kale and collards into the water for swimming lessons. I fill my pot with chopped kale or collards. And then I put about an inch of water in the bottom of the pot, bring it to a boil, turn the fire down, and continue to cook it. Mm. All of the cooking liquid from the collards was in the dish of collards. Mm. Yeah? How much how much liquid was in there? Right? Tiny amount, right? Yeah. So, it, you know, it's not, they don't have to learn swim. No, they almost make their own gravy when you do it like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and now your body can really get hold of that nutrition. They say that cancer eats first. And that this is why people who have cancer should not eat raw food. Because there's no nutrition of any kind in raw food. There's fiber in raw food, and that's a good thing to have, unless you juice it. But there's no nutrition. In other words, there's no vitamins, no minerals, no proteins, no you know, no nutrition. Hmm. Well, I guess I start I start cooking. Yeah. And you know, when I cook collards, I don't cook enough collards for one meal. I cook enough collards to have for three or four meals and put oh, them in the freezer. Sure. Don't you have sure. a garden? Oh, yeah. I do do it in bulk. I, 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 I Yeah. So it's not like I'm cooking collards for three hours every day. Okay. Well, good. Because that's a little time-consuming, Susan, i got to say. But, but it's not because I'm doing all sorts of other things. It doesn't – it requires less time than cooking the collards for a shorter amount of time. Okay, and you put a lid on. You put a lid on this. I put a lid on it. I. It requires me to wash the collards. It requires me to chop the collards. I use the stalks in the collards. It requires me to find a pan and put them in a pan. It requires me to put water in the pan, bring it up to a boil. All of this takes under fifteen minutes, and then to turn the fire down and go find something to do for an hour. Come back through, stir my collards, check to make sure there's still water in there. Put the lid back on. Go do something else for an hour. It's really, it consumes less time than if I was standing there 
cooking that green not enough. Okie doke. Okie doke. My weekend, my weekend just got a little more interesting. Yeah. When my daughter and I were living on our own, she was going to school and I was working, we spent Sunday cooking. We cooked a pot of beans. We cooked a pot of rice. We made a soup. We cooked half a dozen vegetables. And because I'm a bread baker, we baked bread too, but you don't have to do that. And what that meant was that we had home-cooked food for ourselves for every meal. Yeah, I cook, I cook for myself always, always too. It yeah. didn't include some we salads, didn't have, but I We didn't have to do it every day. If she came home exhausted from school and I was exhausted from work, we sat in front of the open refrigerator and ate cold greens, cold beans, and cold rice, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, so you know. Are there, okay, so you're, you're mentioning kale, or, or not kale, the collard. Everything in the cabbage family is going to be a problem for your thyroid, but what I started out saying was that there's a section in new menopausal gears, the wise woman way, that goes into detail about this. Also, about a year and a half ago, golly, maybe two and a half years ago at this point, um, I, I always get a little fuzzy on time as it goes by. Ryan yeah. Drum and I did a teleseminar on the thyroid and having oh. a healthy thyroid. And if you go to wisewomanbookshop.com, I believe that teleseminar is still for sale at some very reasonable price, like 5 to $10. Sure. sure. Okay. Yeah, okay, so those are two really good resources, a written yeah. resource and an oral resource. Yeah, something I can refer back to. And I did. Exactly. I remember looking through through the wise woman about the thyroid, but there were some things I, I should have rushed up before I called you because I had some questions about things. But basically, infusions, four hours, if I want to nourish, and I want to nourish with this uh, fucus, <laughs> whatever this is. I've never heard of this before. What, what kind of an herb is this? It's a seaweed. It's a seaweed. Oh, okay. The other name okay. for it is bladder rack. Bladder rack. Yes. Okay. So, and and that is there anything that I might have in my garden? Uh, you know, I've had plantain come up like crazy in the last few years, and I I, I have the sense that herbs always show up in my yard when I need them. Is is plantain in any way beneficial? It's good for your lungs, right? Plantain is, is that, plantain is a wonderful healing herb. Yep. Uh, plantain said to me when I asked her how I should describe her, she said, I am plain plantain, the Quaker lady. I bring peace. Okay. She said, I always grow where you can tread upon me so that I will be close by. It's interesting. In German, it's um, the way plant, Vigorich. The plant that grows by by your foot, by the way. Oh, it does. It's right. It's right along. It really, like right. It real, and a, a, a funny name for it is white man's foot. Oh yeah. Because the seeds are sticky, and they would stick on the bottoms of the white man's shoes apparently more readily than they would stick on the bottoms of bare feet or moccasins. So I I don't use very much plantain except as a wound healer. And that's my fault. There are many, many other uses for plantain. And if it's appealing to you and you think that it will help you, then I definitely concur with that and support you in that. 
Okie doke. So the, the seaweed, I would make a infusion with that, with bladder act. Well, actually, my uh, neighbor down the road and gym partner, Yvette, who helps the green goddesses make their power shields here this week, I was here for lunch today. And we were talking to her about Fucus. She had been taking thyroid medication for five years and it switched off to Fucus. In fact, it now has stopped even taking Fucus because her thyroid is back to fully normal. And um, she was saying that um, although she had heard that people made infusion of it and drank it, that she found that just intolerable because it's really seaweedy, fishy, oceany tasting. And that yeah. what she does is she mixes it in yogurt with powdered astragalus. Hmm. So she puts the amount of Fucus that she's taking, and mm-hmm. you'll see Ryan Drum's Fucus protocol in New Menopausal Gears, The Wise Woman Ways, well as hear him talk about it in the teleseminar. She puts that amount of Fucus that she's taking, and that has varied for her over the course of her working with it, along with some astragalus in yogurt and mixes it together. And she says, and don't use too much yogurt because you want to be able to, like, swallow it down fast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that. The the only other thing I want to tell you is that if you do decide to go on and to do um, any further um, deep medicine, chemotherapy, radiation, more surgery, uh, look into adaptogenic herbs. It's actually considered malpractice in China to do those things without the use of adaptogenic herbs. And astragalus, okay. which, which we've just been talking about, is one of the adaptogens. And but, that's fine. It can be quite specifically. In other words, ginseng increases the effectiveness of radiation treatments while protecting normal cells. Okay. Okay? So, so I would start, I would, uh, start implementing them before... before a surgery or chemotherapy or anything. So in this space and time yes. while I'm waiting Absolutely. for a next step. Okay. Thank you very much. You are welcome. Okay. The green goddesses and I are tired of giving blood to the mosquitoes. <laughs> and we are going to walk over to the studio where hopefully there are not mosquitoes waiting to feast upon us. But you can go ahead and put the next caller on. Okay. The next caller is coming from the 608 area code. Hello. Good evening. Hi. Hi. I'm calling about a skin cyst that's on my upper thigh. I'm sorry. for For some reason, I'm not getting your words through very clearly. Oh, okay. I'll try again. All right. about it. A skin thick. A skin what? Thick. Thick skin? No, uh, the word cyst, so like a growth. A growth? Yes. Okay. Yeah, cyst, like C-Y-S-T. Oh, a cyst. You're saying the word cyst. Yes. Okay. Right. I've just yeah. never heard the word cyst follow the word skin. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, it's not an internal um, this, but an external one. Uh huh. On my upper thigh. So um, it's not under your skin; it's on the top of your skin. Right. Yeah, it's a dome shape. And there's and no skin very, over it. 
It's just bare tissue and not covered by skin. Well, I think it's covered by skin. I think so, too. I think it is under your skin. Okay, yeah. Yeah? Uh, it's very small. Okay. It's so it is not deeply internal, and it is not right. a cyst of the skin. Okay. Okay? So does it bother you? Um, it's not painful, but it bothers me um, just because it's a bump, and it feels, I don't like the feel of it or the look of it. Uh-huh. And where is it? It's on my You said it's on side. your thigh? Yeah. And is it a place where it's uncomfortable or chafes or hurts you? No, it's, it's painless, so it doesn't hurt. But I wonder if maybe that's how Who's I wound up it because Please. of chafing. Who's the plant killer? Who threw the stone on the plants? The stone needs to go up on its edge and not be thrown down on the plants, please. Thank you very much. Hey, please uh, forgive that break. As you heard, we were moving over to the studio, and someone came into the no studio. There's a, a stone that keeps the studio door shut, and oh. uh, that stone had been thrown down, smashing the nice plants that I grow by the door of the studio. Okay. So I n- needed to deal with that. Thank you for your indulgence while I did that. No problem. Yeah, so I was just wondering if there are any methods or um, plants that would help um, shrink it or help it go away. Comfrey, castor oil. I have actually seen people resolve this kind of of subdermal uh, cyst in two days. Oh, wow. With castor oil. Okay. Right. Edgar Cayce popularized the use of castor oil, especially for dissolving cysts. And um, he, his method was to saturate a piece of flannel. That can be an old flannel sheet or flannel jammies or whatever. A small mm-hmm. square flannel with castor oil, then to wrap it in foil and to heat it in the oven. Mm-hmm. You want to wrap it in foil because you do not want your flannel piece of cloth catching fire, which it will if you just stick it in oh, the oven okay. wrapping it. Right. right. And then you take it out and you remove the foil and you put the hot castor oil cloth on the cyst. Do not mm-hmm. make it so hot that you burn yourself. Okay. Okay? I can do that, yeah. All right. All right. I'll and you can and repeat you that uh, as often as you like. Okay. All right. People often will do it in the evening, in the morning, and if they have a chance in the middle of the day. Whatever okay. works. Yeah. Okay. And I heard you mention comfrey as well. Were you thinking um, drinking comfrey, it? Or comfrey, like castor oil, can be used to resolve this, and usually it's used as a direct poultice, and you can use the leaves from the infusion. So after you strain the liquid infusion off, then you can take the comfrey that's left in the pot and put it directly on any area where you want to poultice with the comfrey. Okay. Comfrey has a lot of tannins in it and it does stain. And so some people prefer 
to make a fomentation, which is to take the wet comfrey leaf and to wrap it in a piece of cloth so that the cloth becomes saturated with the comfrey and then to apply that so that the comfrey doesn't fall all over things and get things messy. Okay. Yeah, maybe I'll try the castor oil first. It seems easier. Yeah. It, it is not necessarily easier. And castor oil is usually sold in drugstores in the children's section. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. And as far as the length of time to leave it on the area for the compress, would you say maybe five cast- The castor oil pack can be left on um, for as long as you're comfortable with it. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, I'll try that. Thank you so much. All right, good. And okay, our thanks to Edgar. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, look him up. I don't know who that is, so I'm looking forward to that. Okay, thank you. Green blessings. Green blessings. Looks like we just have two more people with their hands raised in about 10 minutes until the guest arrives. All right. So the next, yeah, the next caller is coming from the 352 area code. Hi, Susan. My name is Carol Welsh. How are you? And I know you're great. <laughs> you're great, too. How are you tonight, Carol? Susan, my heart is pounding. I have, I can't, I'm talking to you. And what a green honor. I listen to these young girls just picking your brain away like there's no tomorrow. And I'm like, hey, you. I heard about you the summer before you wrote um, Wise Woman for the Childbearing Year at Shara Wellis's house in Virginia. Wow, that is a long, long time ago. I can't believe I'm talking to you. So, What amazing way the world revolves to bring us back together again. Well, my chills and my honor is a tight bit overwhelming me, but please feel my amazing thank you. Oh, my goodness, I'm talking to my goddess. So, hey, Susan, I have a question. I have read every one of your books. I have practiced your medicine since that time. Um, Cynthia Cayley, I worked with her extensively, and I've delivered uh, hundreds of babies in the Virginia area. So, And I have a large family where the youngest is now going to turn 18 years old. And I'm living in Nashville. Am I, is this a good conversation to have on this podcast? This is the first time I've ever even called into anything. So I so can't believe I'm talking to you, Susan. I've written 500 letters to you. How many did you send? Uh, there today, I'm sending all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I read a letter to the Green Goddess this morning from one of last year's Green Goddesses, and she sat down about a month after her Green Goddess apprenticeship and wrote to me, but never sent the letter. And then. The thing she was talking about in that letter actually came to pass, and she was sitting there thinking about that, and she realized that she wanted to write me another letter, and then she went and got the letter. So I got both of the letters at once, written a year apart. It was a lot of fun. I will I will send you at least one after this conversation I'm having with you. It is my deepest honor. Thank you. This is amazing. So I have two questions. And now I listen to your podcast now that I'm podcast savvy, and – I mean, really, I'm only savvy because I've been listening to you. <laughs> and um, 
I have I want to know how hard it is for me to come and apprentice up there. And I have now that I'm in I'm fifty something six ish. I've had eleven children. Ten of living, one was killed, and Cynthia Cayley was there with me during this great funeral we created out of, it was amazing. But anyway, here, it's, here I am now, and my, I'm telling you, I can quote your books to you, and Juliette de Barclay Levy's, and I, Ryan, I mean, I'm in the circuit, <laughs> I sent my children up to Tom Brown's, not my children, two boys. <laughs> hey, you know, you got to do something with them, and then... <laughs> I just, my, uh, so my youngest is 18. I have 11 children. They were all born at home except for two, and I have, they've were raised on nourishing herbal infusions. Great. It's almost I want to tell you how much I am enjoying this conversation. And that, that Rebecca and said will, there were two callers and I had 10 minutes and you've used five of it. Oh, and it's been my five-minute pleasure in the whole wide world. So I will write you a letter from now on. My name is Carol Welsh, and you'll receive that letter. And I can ask my question then, and you can answer, answer it at your pleasure. No, call again with questions. I don't answer, answer questions by mail. I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect you to answer by mail. I want, to, I want to come up there, and I want to stay for six months, and I want to pay my rent and my dues and my life, and I want to be a shaman finally. Great. There's a lot of – now that you're a podcast, Abby, you can go online, and there's a lot of information about apprenticeship. And it starts with and sending me a letter – about why you want to apprentice and a hundred dollar application. Please don't have to waste your time. I've read it all and I'm yeah, and then we I've will take it here. from there. Does that sound doable? Thank you so much. Oh, one hundred percent will do it. Okay, Carol. Thank you for your time. Green Susan blessings. Weed. Good night. Green blessings. Good night. And the last caller before the guest arrives is coming from the eight one two area code. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I've never called in before. Should I? Should I just tell you what's up? Yes. So I have um, I have really like chronic TMJ that um, like pops most of the time when I eat. Like my my jaw will pop, and I am wondering if there's any type of um, herbal remedy that could help me? I use Hypericum tincture. That's the tincture of St. Joan's wort. Some people call it St. John's wort as a reliable way to relax muscles. Okay. I find Um, a of freshly, freshly harvested Hypericum does an amazing job of relaxing any tense muscle very rapidly. The tincture is used internally in dropperful doses, and the oil made from the same plant can also be used externally. I've had massage therapists tell me that if they're massaging someone and they find a place where there's like a knot of muscle, where the muscle is just incredibly tense, that they rub the hypericum oil on it, and then go massage some other part of the body. And when they come back five minutes later, that muscle is completely relaxed and the knot is gone. Oh, so you're saying to not ingest it, but to, like, use it topically. I don't know anyone who injects herbs. You do? Oh, no, not inject, ingest. 
I'm saying, I am saying to take the tincture internally and to use the oil externally. Okay. Okay, great. It's one plant used in two forms and thus in two ways. The oil is rubbed directly into the tense muscle to relieve it, and the tincture is taken to systemically help to ease all muscles. Okay. Okay. Great. Good. And are you drinking nourishing herbal infusions? No. You might want to consider drinking nourishing herbal infusions because part of what's going on is some difficulty in your nervous system that is causing those muscles to clench like that. And usually that difficulty is a lack of minerals. Usually when there's a a muscle problem, there's a a lack of the body's really crying out for minerals. And the nourishing herbal infusions are very fast and delicious and very, very effective way to remineralize. And so even though they, they are not like medicine to counter what's going on with you, they're medicine to make you healthier. And once you're healthier, what's going on isn't going to be going on. Okay. Well, thank you so much. You are welcome. Green blessings. Good night. All right. Good night. And we welcome Mirabai Star to the show. Mirabai Star writes creative nonfiction and translates sacred literature. She has taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico in Taos for 20 years. Now, she teaches and speaks internationally on contemplative practice and inter-spiritual dialogue. Her latest book, Wild Mercy, is subtitled, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women's Mystics. It's forthcoming spring 2019. Oh, that means it's already here because we are well past spring 2019. She lives with her extended family in the mountains of northern New Mexico. Welcome to the show, Maribai. Wow, thank you, Susan. Great to be here with you. Yes. Does that mean that the book is now out and available? Yeah, it's it's been out for four months, and it's in its fourth printing. Yay! Yeah, I mean, I have like 12 books, but this is finally one that (laughs) seems to be really landing and resonating. All right. What what do you think is the, the key there? What's resonating so strongly with people in Wild Mercy? You know, I think it's just the time of the feminine rising everywhere, you know, across the the landscape of the human family and politics and entertainment and the sciences and the arts and definitely in the religious and spir- spiritual arena. It, I think we're really sick of the masculine-dominated spiritual um, shape of things and after... F- that several thousand years of that um i think i think it's just women are and not just women but men and people of all genders really are are thirsty for feminine wisdom and feminine voices and this book is is kind of an exploration of feminine wisdom across all the the world's religions and spiritual traditions well actually um one of the things i really liked about reading what you sent me was that you didn't use the word feminine Mm. Yeah, my and my publisher Tammy Simon concept. tries to avoid that. It's <laughs> female. We're not talking about feminine at all. We're talking about female. Yeah, actually, it's a totally, a totally bit, different thing. 
And I they really are, loved but, that you were using female and that you were clear that this was yeah, about female. Good. Nothing to do with masculine and feminine. Right, it has nothing to do all... with gender identity. Mm. Okay, it's totally yeah. out of that realm. We're talking about female, which is a biological reality. And I think that we are poised at a point where women are starting to recognize how they're being erased. Yeah. And you have opened up a doorway with this wild mercy for that fierce woman to be present. That's right. That's right. Without losing her tenderness. <laughs> exactly. But yes, the female as has the capacity to hold these seeming paradoxes of fierceness and tenderness and wildness and mercy. And um she's she's very comfortable with what the kind of masculine paradigm or the male would call um contradiction is not the contradiction for for her it's it's just the way things are they're both and i i mean i've i've been listening to your show a little bit here and and i can tell that you have you have that fierce female energy and um and it scares men and it scares women <laughs> but it is it is um what the only thing that's going to disrupt this kind of coma that the human family has been in for so long. And I don't think she's going back to sleep, this this rising, fierce female that we see everywhere. She's, I mean, I, it, my mother was a feminist in the 50s and 60s, and, and then it was like that never happened. But this time, I think it's, the lid is off, and, um, and, and what we have to say and what we know is not going to be pushed back under and erased, as you say. Yes. So you grew up in a counterculture household, is that true? Yeah, definitely. Counterculture okay. community. Not just our home, but where we lived. Yeah. Tell tell us what that was like. It's affected you. Uh, well, you know, and one thing, by the way, is I apprenticed with an herbalist when I was twelve <laughs> because around here in Taos, New Mexico in the in the seventies which was the height of this counterculture back-to-the-land movement. School for us, you know, was an alternative hippie-free school, was a matter of just sort of following our bliss and doing whatever we wanted <laughs> and finding adults to, who could support us in that. And one of my interests was, um, was herbal healing and the herbs especially that grow here in the, in the Rio Grande Valley of northern New Mexico. So just a little aside, but it's, also, it's not just an aside because it really reflects the way I grew up. So my parents were peace activists in New York. They were they were um, non-religious Jewish family, kind of social justice oriented and and allergic to religious language of any kind and and any kind of organized institutionalized religious thought. So they it, through the peace movement they ended up getting involved in alternative living and lifestyles and uprooted us our, their three children from our suburban Long Island life, and we went on a kind of odyssey around the U.S. and mostly living in Mexico, in, in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico in, you know, 1972. And we ended up after a year in in New Mexico, which was a real um, destination for counterculture types and artists and hippies and people who wanted to live in 
simplicity and community. And so that's where I grew up, and that's how I grew up, in a communal household, very much self-sustaining, um, voluntary simplicity that was actually poverty, <laughs> which was very different from the early years of my life. And it was in that in that um, scene that I was exposed to alternative spiritual paths from around the world. Well, they weren't really alternatives in the places they came from, like India, but by the t- time they came to Taos, New Mexico, USA, um, they were. So all kinds of forms of meditation and spiritual practice and Sufi dancing and Hindu kirtan and and Native American traditions because we live in the middle of, of a powerful, ancient uh, Native American culture, the Pueblo people. And so all of that was just part of the air I breathed as I was growing up. And I think it really influenced my... my it piqued my curiosity about... The, the great mystery, um, but I ended up it ended up becoming my passion for my my whole life is this investigation of the sacred everywhere I can find it. And your investigation has led you to the female landscape of the heart. Oh, beautifully said. Yes, definitely, and it was missing. Like all my teachers, all my great teachers, many of them are are well-known, some of them are not, um, have been men, have been men who were really teaching a male way of connecting to the divine. And it it was only later in my spiritual path that I started to really come to grips with the fact that women's voices were were really missing from from all of these spiritual practices and understandings of of the divine like the whole half of that of that insight was was not there and that half has a lot to do the female half with embodiment with instead of trying to get away from the body and transcend this earth as if it were just an illusion the female female spirituality is about reclaiming the body and the earth as as this very dwelling place of the sacred. And it was really hard to find, Susan. It was hard to find these women teachers, these these wisdom keepers, because they had been so buried, so erased. And and so it's kind of been an archaeology project, a spiritual archaeology project, to unbury the women in across that landscape of Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and even in the indigenous traditions, which are at least more Mother Earth-centered, but still um, tend to be on the patriarchal side. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm up to. And, and yes, women, men, and non-gender identified people are saying, yes, that this is a wellspring I want to drink from. And it's not just me. You know, many of us are, are up to this right now, which is, I think, why the book is, is resonating, is that it's happening everywhere, this, this um, reclaiming of female wisdom. And you're doing it here on your, on your show and in your books. Many of us are at it. Yes, I felt a, a real kindred spirit with you. Um, when I read that you feel that um, 
the female is inherently inclusive. But I make that even a more specific point. Woman includes man. Man <laughs> does not woman. Wow. God, God, That's brilliant. God does not include goddess. Female includes male. Male does not include female. Okay. Right? Woman, yep. male, and goddess are the inclusive terms. Oh my gosh. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And that feels like that feels round and womb like and circular to me, that whole that whole metaphor. It's not even a metaphor, it's a reality. It's a linguistic reality that reflects something deeper. Yeah, that the, that the very nature of woman is to include. Right. And to work as groups. Exactly. Which is, is why it's hard to find those kind of female teachers that you're talking about because most of us as women don't present ourselves as individuals. We present ourselves as groups. Mm. So I true. Remember, it's a, I remember is, it to me about his time among the Weechel. And he said, Susan, you know, I say that this man was my teacher because it was one man, and I can say he's the man, but the truth of the matter was that most of my learning came from the women of the group, but I can't single out any one of them. Yes, right. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like the American emphasis on individuality and pulling yourself up from your bootstraps. It's like the, the whole American paradigm is anti-female in some ways. It's it's the the whole notion of an individual um, hero or prophet or savior is just uh, doesn't doesn't resonate with with I think the female sensibility, which exists in, in some men as well. In fact, I think in all men. At least I, I, the archetype does. Female includes male. That's right. Yes. You don't have to add anything special. You already included male. <laughs> Female. It's inclusive. Mm. No apologies needed. That's right. Right? If men find themselves in woman and female and goddess, then we are on the right track. <laughs> Would you like me to read you something that, a short paragraph that uh, I think speaks to that? I would love it. Okay. Um, you, this is radio, right, so I can't say certain words? It's blog talk radio. I don't think there's any censor. Okay. All right. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> the way of the woman. This is from a, my chapter called, uh, let's see, what's it called? The Web of Interbeing, the, um, Building Community. So this is on, on community. The way of the woman is to find out what everyone is good at and praise them for it and get them to teach it to one another. Maybe you know something about the hidden meanings of the Hebrew letters or how to build a sustainable home from recycled tires and rammed soil, or loving-kindness meditation. You, the one who knows the Islamic call to prayer, climb this minaret and call us all to prayer. You, 
the one who knows how to sit quietly at the bedside of the dying, show us the way to bear witness. You, the one who knows how to get us to wake up to the shadow of privilege, please wake us the fuck up. It will be chaotic, all this community building, but your cooperation will save the world. Besides, it will be fun. So what I'm really speaking well, to there is teachers that calling I on... Says you can't fake fun. You can't fake fun. <laughs> fun. These are like, mm-hmm. You can fake sincerity, but you can't fake fun. <laughs> right. Right. And and it's it, that's the impulse of the female, is to just look around and see who has what to bring to the table and and not try to be the, you know, the boss who... I mean, some of us have leadership impulses and leadership abilities, and so great, that's what, that's what is ours to bring to the table. But there's this recognition that everyone is included and everyone belongs, and that we are a part of this web of interbeing, which I kind of discovered the hard way. Tell us more about that. Well, you know, because I think I was raised, spiritually raised, by by a bunch of white male teachers. Huh, I didn't even mean to say white, but it just came out because I think that is mostly the case. You know, privileged dudes who um, were telling me how to transcend my body and, and um, awake, awaken from the illusion of this earth. It took me a long time to kind of reclaim my belonging to this this web of interbeing to this net and it wasn't and i often thought of myself as being very special starting from a really young age when i was recognized by certain spiritual teachers for having certain spiritual gifts or whatever and so i really bought into that and um when i was 40 and I had already been through the pain of a of a terrible divorce and had been certainly humbled by that and had really tried to learn how to be a human being um, in, in my 30s. But when I was 40, my, my 14-year-old daughter, Jenny, was killed in a car accident. And on that day, I feel now that I was able to, for the first time in my life, take my rightful place as an ordinary human being experiencing the human condition and that women throughout time and across cultures and right now had experienced, were experiencing, and would yet experience the death of a child and that instead of rendering me even more special because I had been through this great loss, it... It welcomed me to the human family in a way that I had never experienced. All my specialness fell away, and I, I actually had a vision. I don't have visions much, but I did. Um, the, during that first 10 days or so after Jenny died, I had this vision of this kind of web of mothers that were holding me that went you know, infinitely into space and time. And and I re- realized in that moment, as I as I let myself down into that net that held me, um, and it was made up of grieving mothers, 
in particular. Um, I, I kind of saw, I knew I wasn't ready, but that someday I would take my place as the holder, as one of the holders in this, in this net. And, um, and I think that I have, I have, and I, I owe that to my beloved Jenny. Thank you, Jenny. Another woman, her teenage daughter being killed, and she sank into a very deep depression after she had been in this, I mean, literally not getting out of bed depression for years. Mm. Her daughter Mm. appeared to her in a vision, and she said, Mom, you are alive. Would you get out of bed? She said, I'm in a line that stretches for miles before I get a new body. Why are you wasting it? Oh. Yes, and it worked. Yes, but the most loving, kind thing we can do is to live. Hmm. So and so, wild mercy. This is we talking to here on my star of wild. Well, my website's a good a good way, mirabystar.com. That's uh, M-I-R-A-B-A-I-S-T-A-R-R.com. And there's a contact button, and there's a way to sign up for for my <coughs> newsletter. And um, I do lots of live retreats and workshops and things like that. So I'm likely well, to have an event near you. <laughs> at mirabystar.com. Yes. M I R A B A I S T A R R Mirabai Star dot com. How do you define wild mercy? Mm. Well, there is this uh, boundless container of the female heart that holds these seeming. Um, different, seemingly different qualities that belong to the to the landscape of the female being, the female soul. And one of those is the obvious set of attributes that we have often historically associated with women, like loving kindness and compassion and unconditional love and forgiveness. And that vast container of the of the woman of the female also holds this unbridled unleashed ungovernable wildness and that's our creativity and our sexuality and our fierce truth telling and our willingness to say no to injustice and to say yes to the presence of real, radical, authentic love and connection wherever we can find it. Wow. (laughs) Wild mercy, living the fierce and tender wisdom of the women mystics. Do you think that women respond to pain differently than men and 
let me see if I can be clear. First of all, we know that physically women respond to pain much differently than men and that there are whole classes of painkillers which have never come to the market, which are highly effective in women, but they're not on the market because they don't work for men. Wow. But I think you mean something more like pain or emotional pain. Right. Um, do I think women have a greater capacity for emotional pain than men? Well, the, or, uh, uh, do they respond differently? Not necessarily a greater capacity, but do they respond mm, differently? Yes. Okay. We can all think of great female examples of women who are endless reservoirs of pain, but I don't think we're talking about. Right, 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 right. Um, there is something about the female heart that knows how to break open, not just break, but break open, which then gives us this kind of boundless, shattered <laughs> space to hold everything, including the pain of others and the pain of the world. So I think one of the things that's missing in the current activist scene, for instance, you know, the, the world of, of activists who are stepping up to try to, to do something about the climate catastrophe and, and human rights violations and all of these, these spaces of, of great suffering in the world. Um, that when we apply these kind of mechanistic solutions that come from the male mind, often we just create further division, and it's not it, it hasn't been working. It's needed. Those male mechanistic solutions are needed. But I think what's also needed is the female willingness to allow our hearts to break in the face of the suffering of the world, whether it's Mother Earth herself or whether it's any of her children in the form of human communities and individuals. So we come from this place of not being afraid to feel the pain of the world, but in fact, the impulse to gather the broken and the, and the injured and the, the suffering into our arms and listen, lean in and listen first before we try to come up with um, these these discursive analytical solution-driven ideas on the matter. Um, and so I think that there's something about our urge to show up and be present for reality as it is, even when it's terrible and difficult and painful that grants us this extra ability to um, to shift from suffering to healing. I, th I think that in your book you talk about this through the lens of the transformation of death. Yeah. Right. Death is a perfect w uh, example of of the like ripping off of those, I don't know, those protective layers that keep us from actually having a direct encounter with the terrible beauty of this world. Like there's nothing, nothing like being with a, with the dying as they're taking their last breaths that invites us into that kind of liminal, numinous, sacred 
landscape that most of the Western world, you know, most of, of society um, conditions us to get away from <laughs> those mystery realms, those those messy, broken open spaces of death and also of birth, childbirth. So, you know, it's like, let's get that over with. <laughs> it hurts and it's messy. I mean, the, from the masculine, from the male point of view. And I think that, that the female flourishes in those messy, broken spaces. Uh, that's where grace comes flowing, flooding in and and illumines everything. That's a very, very lovely image. The illumination of grace that comes flowing in to the messy and broken spaces. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Because, as you say, you know, that that more male-dominated spirituality really holds up this image of somehow being perfect, being balanced, being neat, being clean, being pure. Yes. Especially applies that to women. Yes. And therefore, the woman has been the unholy one. Because Bad and wrong. is the denizen of the messy spaces. That's right. There's a wonderful conference that I've taught at a couple of times in Costa Rica called Edges. And they call it Edges mm. because Edges is where the change is happening. Mm, exactly. That's that's where the is occurring, is at the edge. Yes. And it cannot be legislated and regulated and and um obeyed. <laughs> It's really subversive and a threat to the to the patriarchy. Mirabai Star, it has been an amazing time talking with you. I hope mm-hmm. everyone goes to Mirabai Star dot com and that they connect themselves with a copy of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. I call what you are doing, what I am doing, reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients. That we, thread by thread, are amazing cloak that our ancestors left for us Beautiful. Thank you, Mirabai Star, for all that you are doing for all women to help us reclaim our fierceness and our tenderness and the right to be in messy spaces. Hey, Becca, thanks for helping me restore herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. It's the medicine that grows right outside your door. Green blessings. Green blessings, everyone. Good night. Blessings, Justine and Monica Jean. Good night. Love you.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.